Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, thank you all for listening. Very exciting. So let's see. Last week was, oh, the, the very long mini-sode about Oliver, much to my surprise. Uh, and we will get into this week's episode in just a moment, but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the International Christian Film Festival, which I've talked about before, but I have some specifics now. So it is going to be the last weekend in April this month. It's going to be in Orlando, Florida. I will be giving a lecture called Speaking the Language of Film. It will be Friday, April 29th at 10 a.m. It's entirely possible that no one will be there. And what with it being 10 a.m., I myself might not be there, at least not mentally. But I will do my best. I've, I've put together my outline. I'm going to be showing some clips. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm very excited. Uh, and I will also say that if you live in the Orlando area, email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com. Not merely because I enjoy meeting uh, listeners. I enjoy meeting fans. But also, uh, we are going to have a booth there, and I will need help manning the booth. Uh, at the very least, because sometimes I have to go to the bathroom, and sometimes I have to grab something to eat. And at the very least, I might want somebody to, you know, take photos of the uh, of the the lecture and stuff like that. So, if you uh, are able to help, I would really appreciate it. Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. Please uh, uh, email me as soon as you can, because uh, uh, time grows short. Uh, this thing has it kind of snuck up on me. Actually, I had a lot of stuff going, and once that stuff was over, I realized, oh shoot, that's very that's very close. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm very excited, and I wanted to thank uh, Marty who who runs the festival for giving me the opportunity to do this lecture, and I hope everything goes well. So, uh, now at the International Christian Film Festival, they're going to be showing Christian films in a festival format internationally. Well, it's going to be in Orlando, but uh, so today we are going to be talking about a Christian film uh, that many of you have heard of. It is a sequel. It is called God's Not Dead 2. It's directed by Harold Kronk. And look, you can't talk about a God's Not Dead film or really a Christian film at all without my co-host, Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Hi, everyone. <laughs> You are, I recognize it's chilly in here, but you've got your arms folded. You look like you've been traumatized. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely. So, uh, I will lead with this. Um, for whatever reason, okay, probably because in the last two months, we have gotten Risen, The Young Messiah, Miracles, Miracles from, from Heaven. From Heaven, yeah. And God's Not Dead too. And then there's probably going to be several more mm -hmm. over the next year. Well, this um, is the big month because it's Easter, but yeah, or I suppose March was. Um, and so, uh, and then last year, you know, we had you know War Room and, and Woodlawn and a few others. Uh, this does seem to be the year when things are are sort of coming to a head, or not necessarily, but like when. Things are coming out in rapid succession. I'm interested to see what the rest of the year is going to look like. You know, once upon a time, anytime there was a slightly high-profile Christian film, we would talk about it, which meant talking about one every couple of years. Now, we didn't talk about The Young Messiah. We didn't talk about uh, Miracles from Heaven because it's like, there's just so... I, it's one thing to cover these films from time to time. It's another thing to actually neglect talking about bigger films that I think are better made uh, in order to talk about these. So it's a very strange time. Uh, I have considered 
coming up with some kind of spinoff podcast that only reviews Christian films because there's just so many of them. There's there's a there's a pure flick streaming service where you can watch tons of them. Apparently, they're starting TV shows through that as well. Now, yeah, like which, as a la Netflix, which I'm actually more intrigued by that yeah. because I feel like maybe a TV show. They might feel less compelled to have a conversion in every episode. Yeah. I feel like it just lends itself to subtlety because you need to, you need to stretch things out over the course of a season, you know, whereas in a movie, you've got two hours to show a lot of stuff. If you have to stretch that out over 13 hours, Mm -hmm. maybe everything, it goes a little bit slower and, and we're allowed a, a few more quiet moments. I don't know. I like the idea of it. It remains to be seen how it'll go, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, and I will say, here's the other thing that I wanted to talk about before we get into the, the episode, uh, proper, uh, I was talking with you about this, uh, shortly before we, uh, agreed to, to talk about this movie. Um, so there are at this point, a number of podcasts, uh, YouTube channels, whatever, of people, often atheists, reviewing Christian film. There's a pod, a very popular podcast called God Awful Movies, which is a good title. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, multiple YouTube channels. I have uh, people have sent me uh, videos by by you know uh, again non Christians and often very ardent atheists uh, reviewing these films. Um, and I've listened to some stuff and I've watched some stuff and unsurprisingly, <laughs> the, the reviews are not good. The reviews are in, in the atheist community of <laughs> God's not dead and those types of movies and uh, thumbs down. Uh, but what's odd to me is that while you and I will, for lack of a better term, bash these movies all day long, and I actually think we do a pretty good job of trying not to get too snarky, not to get too dismissive of these films, trying to look for the good where we can find it. Um, but you and I acknowledge that these movies are not very good, and yet somehow it bothers me tremendously when these people tear into them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure why. Maybe I'm a little bit uh, possessive. <laughs> maybe I feel like I've earned it. Yeah. Um, maybe I feel like it's almost this idea of I, I remember um, Jimmy Pardo uh, once made a number of jokes on stage where he would reference a specific movie that's like for kids or, or whatever. And people in the audience, like, you know, the, the hipsters in the UCB audience would like have a reaction and he would very quickly go into his Jimmy Parter persona and say like, it's not for you. (laughs) And I feel like it's maybe that. And, you know, and while a lot of uh, Christian publicists will say, you can invite your, your non-Christian friends to this, which is never true. But, um, these movies are primarily for Christians. They're for people that Hollywood doesn't seem to care that much about. And, that is, and and you know catering to an underserved audience is something that I'm I'm okay with totally. catering and pandering are very different things yeah um, and so for people for people that these movies were never for and that quite possibly were never going to be into these films 
Um, and I don't mean to say that because, you know, I know plenty of atheists that love the apostle. They love last temptation of Christ and a number of these other films. So I might be wrong in that. And in any non-Christian listeners or atheist listeners, feel free to comment in the comment section about this, but it does just feel like they're, they're stepping into a place that they know is bad and that was never meant for them. Like there are so many levels of criticism there that I just feel like it's almost like to a certain extent shooting fish in a barrel. I don't know. I, I can't quite put my finger on why it bothers me. Can you help describe why it bothers me? <laughs> um, and does it bother you? I, it doesn't seem to bother most I mean, people. I think it bothers me a little bit. There, there's part of it that seems bullying a little bit. Um, when it feels like people are approaching something that like, for instance, if I were to go and, if I were to do a podcast about Dora the Explorer and how sure. stupid every episode was and how sure. Dora can't figure out anything out, out on her own, yeah. like that would be mean spirited. And I, maybe I would point out some artistic inconsistencies sure. or problems with the show. But if I'm coming to something that I know is not for me, um, that I know is, is, is catering to an audience that I am not in touch with, I feel like ridiculing that is being bullying a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, there, I th feel like there's a lot of reasons that it could bother someone. Um, I, and I think a lot of it comes from kind of a mean spirit. It definitely does. And it's, it seems maybe easy. It's like it's they're easy points to make. You're going like we do. Let's let me put it this way. We do this show talking about good movies, bad movies, looking for spiritual themes in movies that might not immediately have them or people don't think of them as having those themes. Uh, and then we will come across Christian films. We look for the good in them. If we find it, we'll declare it. If we find that it's bad, we'll declare that. And so I feel like for the most part, we give these movies a fair shake. I have to assume these, these people having not listened to every episode, um, I have to assume they're not going in looking for the good. No. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like a good analogy maybe is if there were like a preacher who, uh, was like a bad speaker and was not attractive. Yeah. And you know, nervous in the way that he presented his message and maybe didn't really present it in a very full and very convincing way. Um, if someone were to go and laughingly point out all the reasons that he was bad at being a preacher. Yeah. I think most of us would agree that's, that's unnecessary and it would bother you and it would, it would bother people. And that's, it's kind of the same thing. Like yeah. if these movies are poorly made movies and sometimes they are, then going into something that you know is going to be poorly made and has a message that you don't agree with. It's almost, it's almost as if they're equating the two mm -hmm. that they're saying like, well, these are made badly because they contain a bad message. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I that, that bothers me, that idea. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It just gets me, gets my hackles up. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that bothers me across the board when people, uh, uh, connect the uh, they, they equate the presentation of something with the thing itself yeah um that happens a lot on the positive side when someone's a very convincing speaker uh, about something that's totally factually incorrect or based on very shaky assumptions but people get yeah. all excited about it we see that a lot in uh politics season now yeah well um, and stuff like michael moore who is yeah. a very talented filmmaker i mean he knows how to make a movie yeah but his movies are just complete 
lies, you know, maybe yeah. not complete, mostly. Um, and it's, uh, but because of the presentation, there's, why would I doubt him? He's so good at presenting this stuff, you know, I feel like which Chris- does speak to, by the way, I feel like that very fact is something that Christian filmmakers can learn from that. If you're not presenting this well, people aren't going to like, you want to be able to present it so well that people who don't believe want it to be true. Yeah. And as of right now, that is, that is mostly not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, uh, we should, we should move on. It was just something that that was on my mind and, and I'm not super, I'm not even necessarily comfortable with the fact that it bothers me because maybe I'm getting, uh, possessive of this thing. Maybe I, I thought that like, no, 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 this is my corner of the internet. Thank you very much. And I earned it by doing this podcast for many years and sitting through a lot of the movies that you only now are arriving at now that, uh, the rest of us have, have done, have built it up into something. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's a pride issue on my own part. I'm not sure. But, uh, but yeah, listeners feel free to uh, Christian or non-Christian feel free to weigh in, uh, in the comment section. And let me know. Uh, <clears throat> but to get to the movie itself, so we're talking about God's Not Dead 2. Now, listeners might recall that uh, two years ago when we saw the first God's Not Dead, we did not care for it. Uh, there are a couple, there are a handful of things that we came away from and saying that was good, that was good. Uh, the big thing that we came away with was that Kevin Sorbo is a really good actor and, and should get, you know, more and better work. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't even watch the trailer for God's Not Dead 2. So many people linked to it often in a in a in a jokey way. A lot of people emailed it emailed me or tweeted me about it when it was released. Um I was frustrated that they were making another one, but I guess that first one made so much money that it's understandable. Yeah. Um it is odd that you know, the Left Behind series is like a science fiction adventure kind of thing. So sequels make sense. Also, there are multiple books. Mm-hmm. It seems odd to make a sequel to a drama, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about a Godfather drama because that's the crime world. And that will go the advent, the, for lack of a better term, adventures of the mafia will go on until everyone is dead. <laughs> um, whereas this, um, it's just like, oh, here's just... Some more of the stuff that happened, uh, pretty innocuous. But when I found out that it was actually a completely different story, now there are some crossover characters, which actually bothers me, but a completely different story under the heading of God's Not Dead, I actually kind of liked the idea of that, that God's Not Dead is just like the name of this thing, and here's a bunch of separate stories that are only thematically related mm-hmm. underneath that banner. I li- I actually liked the idea of that, but I always yeah. like that kind of thing. Were, were you the one who was talking to me about the idea of that happening with Cloverfield? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a funny idea. Then I, I conflated that into a whole like thing that made me laugh in my head where there's like a, uh, there's like a law drama one and it's, it's called like, inspector Cloverfield or something like how, how would they work the name <laughs> into every single title? Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, uh, I remember that's what John Carpenter originally had in mind for Halloween. The, mm. the first Halloween. Oh, yeah, because that's why Halloween three series. is a totally different. Yeah. Yeah. If, if Halloween Season of the Witch had been the second film instead of the third, but as it is, the first and second one are all Michael Myers. And so at that point, people thought Halloween, Michael Myers, that's it. Whereas if it had simply been 
The first one is Michael Myers. The second one is Season of the Witch. The third one is some other random Halloween thing. It's just like this anthology thing. Mm -hmm. Then maybe you could bring back Michael Myers for like the fifth film or something like that. And that would be really exciting. But by doing one right after another, Halloween became all Michael Myers all the time. Hmm. As for me, I would have liked it so much more if they had gone with John Carpenter's original (laughs) idea and Halloween was just this banner under which you could, in an almost Tales from the Crypt or Twilight Zone kind of thing, tell different stories, different feature-length stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of like the idea of that with God's Not Dead, but by incorporating a handful of characters from the first film, it's like, all right, so it's... It's uh, I, I feel it's like all they, part of the same world. Well, I feel like they want to do that banner thing, like you're talking about. But I feel somehow like they feel beholden to the idea that if it's a sequel, it has to incorporate some of the same people. Yeah, I think um, I think I would like it more if it was like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you set up sep- several stories and then they all come together and march on Washington D.C. in like the fifth <laughs> film or something like that. Um, that was a little bit glib, but I I'm kind of addicted to the concept of a shared universe. Um, as dumb as that might sound because it marvel does it so well um so yeah i was i was uh when i found out what it was i was a little bit not again not excited but i was like oh what a novel idea but then when they made it clear that okay it's taking place in the same same place a few of the same characters i thought all right well this isn't necessary because almost invariably if we're jumping in which let's go ahead and do that. Almost invariably, anytime we cut to the care, the returning characters, I lost interest yeah. when it was the court case. Uh, I'm there. It's not that it's not that it's that good, but I'm invested mm-hmm. and, and I will go ahead and use that to get into, well, maybe we won't get into specifics yet. Uh, we will speak in generalities. Yeah, first. and I, I feel like we've kind of done it before where we, were to, where we sort of want to speak in generalities about the good things first, which yes. I feel like is a, is a good instinct. So um, as I was thinking about that, I watched the film today. So I was trying to think like who... I'm getting into too many ideas at the same time. Okay. I think we've talked about this a little bit before. I'm, I kind of don't agree with the idea of there being a, uh, like a spectrum of good and bad for movies where, uh, movies are good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there are movies that appeal to people and I feel like taste and, and, uh, subjectivism is so much a part of it that it's hard to strictly call a movie good or bad. Mm -hmm. So the, the one of the ways I look at that often is like, okay, well why, why does somebody like this? And I don't feel like I can say somebody's wrong for liking it. So I try to think of the type of people who would go into this movie and come out thinking, I like this movie Mm -hmm. and I would think, why would they like it? And what's right about that? Yeah. So, I came from a, you know, grew up in a Christian homeschool Southern community. It yeah. seems like everything that like that, that I grew up with a lot of people who are in effect, the target audience for this type of movie. You're chewing tobacco right now. <laughs> you do kind of have a lumberjack shirt on now that I think true, about I do. it. It looks good on me though. <laughs> um, so if only this was a video podcast, um, people would be like, that guy's shirt is really working. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll come back for next week. Uh, But so I feel like when I think of the people that I knew then and that I still know now from that kind of world that would enjoy that, I think 
one of the things that people would get out of that is a sense of encouragement. And I think that is good in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And to, to me, that was what I came out thinking was the most positive thing about it is mm. that um, it's based around a story which is very close to something that's really happening in the country now often, mm-hmm. um, which is that people are being uh, – there, there are a lot of these court cases where people's uh, are not being able to express their faith in a way that they feel like is consistent with their freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Right. Um, and it is encouraging to see people struggle against that. Uh, fight that and spoilers succeed. Yeah. Um, Although they don't always succeed. No, not, not, not a hundred percent. Yeah. Which, which I think is good. I think that's a, uh, that is more interesting dramatically. So I like the moments of not succeeding in the film. Um, Oh, I meant in real life. I would actually like a movie where at the end they don't succeed. And I, I, there's a little bit of that maybe at moments. Um, Uh I feel like that's mostly not what it is. And I, I too would like to see more of that, which I think I'll, uh, I'll get to that later. Um, But, uh, but so I feel like it, it is encouraging and, it is affirming that there is it, it, it is affirming in general. And one of the, one of the things that I think it affirms well, that was the case with the, fir- with the first one mm-hmm. was that when it gets into some actual arguments and specifics, it goes to real to, to people who know what they're talking about and presents a good strong case. Yeah. Now maybe it doesn't have enough of the back and forth. And I feel like there's less, of the necessary back and forth in this film than there was in the other one. Yeah. Um, but I feel like they're, they're not resting on their laurels and just saying like, well, everyone agrees with this. So we're, we're not going to yeah. try very hard to make the case. Um, I think there may be a little bit of an, well, sorry, that's something Positives. else I'll get to later. Yeah. Um, so I like, I like where they go with that. I like <laughs> being, who I am and who I grew up being, I was like, well, Lee Strobel's got to be part of this sure. at some point. And being um, who I am now, I was like, boy, I hope they have Jay Warner Wallace. <laughs> I was like, hey, because I because I listen to his podcast and I like him a lot. I, I did not know him before now, and I'm I'm glad that I do now. He was he uh, his moment was maybe my favorite in the movie. Yeah, um, and it's worth noting. And I read this in in a couple other reviews that sorry, this is maybe a bit too specific, but that uh, this is a guy who was a detective. He's probably used to being on the stand. Yeah. And his demeanor kind of shows it. Whereas Lee Strobel was more like giving a talk. Yes. Yeah. You know, this guy was giving actual testimony. Yeah. That guy, when uh, Jay Warner Wallace, you said was the name, mm-hmm. when he's up there, it feels like that, that feels like one of the most genuine moments yeah. in the movie. You've got him and Ray Wise yeah. going back and forth. Yeah. And he, he knows what he's talking about. It really seems like it's in a courtroom. It seems natural. And, and he presents a good and strong case and something that, yeah, something that demands to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. So, and on that matter of what it does right with, uh, in presenting some of the facts, I, I would almost want to ask, I thought this during the, while I was watching the movie, I would want to ask like atheist listeners, you probably don't want to go see this movie and that's fine if you don't. Neither did Josh. But, but if you, if any of you do want to go and see the movie, um, I really would be honestly interested to see 
what people think of those points, like what atheists yeah. think of the points that are made. Because to me, they seem very strong. Now, th- there could be atheists who would go into that and say, well, I don't, that doesn't make sense because of this or this or that. Right. And that's great. I mean, that's, that's rational argument. And I think that's something that should happen when we're talking about things and when we want to talk about them as serious historical fact to be taken, to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, so I'd be very interested to hear people's responses to a lot of these things. Um, especially the fact of like Jesus as a, as a historical figure. Yeah. I feel like that's not an argument that we honestly hear very often. So maybe it's not super powerful to make, uh, to counter the argument that Jesus as a historical person never existed. There are, I mean, there is there, this thing that, what is it? The, the God who wasn't there. The, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's definitely there's people definitely, who, who yeah. make that argument, but I feel like maybe I'm in a bubble, but I feel like in this day and age, most people, it is generally and even widely accepted that there was a historical human being yeah. named Jesus. Um, uh, so, yeah, but so to kind of recap a lot of that, I thought the, um, I think it is encouraging. I think it is informing. I like the points that it gives and I like that that helps people be ready to, to uh, give a testimony to, you know, to that. Yeah. Is that, is that verse on here? It's on down there. <laughs> on the next page i think <laughs> all right we'll get to that later then yeah. but um uh i and i think that's good um i think for people who like a certain type of light drama mm-hmm. the the comparison that comes to me for some reason is shows on the cw i don't know why maybe it's because maybe yeah. it's because i think their visual is a similar look sure um I was going to say something like in the area of like Nicholas Sparks and John Grisham. Yeah. Yeah. Or like John Grisham isn't always light. I mean, but right. Yeah. Um, for, for stuff like that, if people like films like that and, um, want something that they can trust is not going to have content in it. Yeah. Then yeah. This you mean is, objectionable content. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> you might've let something <laughs> slip there. Um, uh, but yeah, if someone felt that way, then I think this also could be a good film for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I feel like those are not just dumb positives. Like I feel like those are real positives. Yeah. You know, and I, and in the general sense, I actually agree with you. Um, I came away much to my surprise because usually these movies just, I cringe and I do not feel inspired. I might feel at best, from a th- from a theological standpoint, I might at best feel reminded of what I knew was true, but I learned it in a better way elsewhere, uh, like in War Room um, and the idea of like being a self sacrificing spouse and stuff like that. Uh, that was simply telling me it was reminding me of something I already believed, and I was like, oh yeah, I got I should probably do that more. Um, with this, uh, yeah, there are a couple of moments of, of boldness and, and it is an interesting thing because there's a, a, in it, there's a mixture of concepts of what American liberty means and standing up for your beliefs, uh, in the face of what have you, it could be, uh, professional, uh, consequences. It could be social consequences, whatever it might be. Um, and that, yeah, there's, it's a thing that we have to do and that we're, we're told to do and it's very uncomfortable and it sucks. And, you know, it's, uh, I've been very honest here that like early on in the early days of this podcast, uh, some of the negative reviews and some of the names that I was called made me so perpetually angry. I was losing sleep and it kind of what 
it's kind of what uh, kicked off my depression. Um, to the, I was just angry all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I, I do know what that's like. And, and that's, fa- that's very low level, by the way. Like at any point I could have just not read comments, not yeah. opened emails, but for some people that's not an option. Uh, some people it's their job. Some people it's, you know, if you're a student or whatever it is, or you're trying to run a business and you're trying to run it the way you think it should be run. And someone says, no, that's not how it should be run. I've known people who went to college with me who after, after college, who went on to like scientific and medical fields mm-hmm. and were openly ridiculed for sure. their, their beliefs within those communities. Yeah. It's uh, it, it is a real thing that happens. And I'm not going to sit back and act as though we are like a persecuted minority, especially when there is stuff, there are people being actually murdered by uh like on purpose and in large numbers in other countries uh so i'm not gonna act like we're anywhere near them near there but you know if you lose a job or or you you are denied a grade in a class or something like that because of this because this rubs somebody the wrong way it's like I'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to call that persecution, but I will say it's a singling out. Well, um, yeah, and I think from a this is getting political a little bit, but yeah, uh, I think it's important for people to fight against things like that at this level. Sure, because a lot of the times the people that are murdering the Christians are coming from ideologically the same place. They've yeah. just moved to a point where they feel like the stakes are high enough that they need to take violent action against it like there are uh, you know governments that murder christians because they think they're dangerous for kind of the same reasons that some people within the aclu might think that christians are dangerous now the aclu isn't advocating the murder of christians of course not right but that's because it's current day america and we don't think that way we might think that way in 50 years so if people don't yeah that 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 sounds more doom saying than i really mean it to be but like governments and peoples and societies change and can sometimes change rapidly. So I think the reason, one of the reasons I think it's important for us to not cry persecution, but to point out that this thing is not, this sort of thing is not supposed to happen is because the way that you get to a society in which people are murdered for beliefs that are seen as dangerous is by slowly allowing uh, the society to dictate what is more important than to, to dictate that certain things are more important than freedoms like speech and religion. Yeah. Um, there are small fires that need to pull uh, that need to be put out before they spread and then turn into a full, uh, a full on wildfire that you can't do anything about. You know, uh, there are corrections that need to be made without ever saying that like we are, we in the U S are full on martyrs and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I do agree with you there. And when I hear about this stuff in real life, uh, it bothers me tremendously. And I feel like I want to give somebody some money mm-hmm. or something. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and I'm sure that there are listeners that will hear what you and I just said and immediately say like, well, it's not so bad. You know what? It's, you're right. It's not so bad. No, it could be much But worse. if you are, if you are say a baker and you have to pay $137,000, it's pretty bad for that person. Mm-hmm. If you're a student at Southwest Missouri State who is given an incomplete because they refuse to do something that is very much outside the teacher's purview in regards to um, certain social justice things, uh, and then 
the teacher is backed up by the head of the department and the student didn't didn't actually do anything academic academically wrong uh, and then they, then they're required to attend like sensitivity training and that sort of thing then yes in the long run it's not that bad but for that student it's pretty bad mm-hmm. and frustrating and i feel like yes we are getting a little bit political now and i apologize but that is sometimes these and and i do try to avoid getting political on here unless i'm telling people not to vote for donald trump um (laughs) which i feel like that's almost a spiritual thing um i do try to avoid getting political on here but sometimes they do intersect and uh listeners this might bother you this might turn you off and i'm sorry about that but this is what i think and this is what josh thinks and yeah and and it's what the movie is talking that's the thing like there is a political angle to this movie necessarily because of what it is um if somehow you don't know what this movie's about already and, and you're still I mean, yeah. listening, wow, good for you. You're committed. Thank yeah. you. Um, so uh, it, it's about a woman, a, a woman who's a teacher, a student in her class asks her a question about Jesus in comparison to Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi and their, uh, their uh, ideas about nonviolence. Yeah. And the teacher responds that, yes, this is something like what Jesus said. And she quotes some scripture. Yeah. Uh, a student hears that, uh, notifies the the somebody that eventually gets around to the school board. She's uh, the teacher is suspended, and then ultimately the ACLU comes in to sue her for yeah for proselytizing within a public school. Yeah. So like because of that part of it, like the the court case of it, it's it's it it deals directly with politics, the politics of the United States, and the way that that is interpreted by different groups. Yes. Uh, yes, that is a very good summary. And, uh, and I will use that to, to take me into the, the positives in this case, some more specific positives. Uh, as I said, yes, like yourself, I felt emboldened by the film and I felt like, okay, well, what can I do in my own little sphere? And I realized like, oh, the podcast, I can just do the podcast. Um, you're doing it already. Problem solved. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, I think this is a better film than the first one for a few reasons. First and foremost, the plot is streamlined so much more. There is something inherently dramatic about a court case. You, you're always moving forward. It's who's the next witness? Okay, here, here's a bunch of questions for the witness. I now have a rebuttal. You know, or now I have a uh, you know, cro- uh, cross examination cross-examination thank you uh it's just like um it's like okay uh i will now cross-examine the witness and it's like okay now i'm going to redirect the witness okay we got the points made uh next witness it just moves forward constantly you know and there is the opportunity for uh, a witness being treated as hostile Mm -hmm. there are monologues uh in the in the you know when it comes to statements and stuff like that there are points when a judge can hit his gavel and say order in the court exactly i will have order yes or i hold you in contempt or i'm gonna allow it yes you better be going somewhere (laughs) I'm, I'm thinking more of Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yeah. <laughs> approximating what he thinks the legal system is based on episodes yeah. of Law and Order that he's seen. Uh, yeah, that's about right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there there is inherent. Dra- I mean, there have been a number of courtroom dramas. There's a reason why. There's a reason why legal dramas, hospital dramas, and police dramas are 
you know, TV's lousy with them because there's <laughs> inherent drama there. And mm-hmm. so by having this be in mostly in a courtroom, um, I feel like it just, I'm inherently more invested. I'm inherently more engaged with what's happening. And, and this is not merely one small story in a movie that has six of them. This is the story as opposed to the classroom stuff in the first film, which the film was touted as it's about this. There is a lot of extraneous stories. That is that really the classroom stuff is covers maybe 30% of the screen time, maybe 35 and the rest of it is devoted to these other things. Whereas this one, it is clearly, it is definitely, I'd say 60 to 65% of the film, maybe even more. Uh, there are subplots here and there and some stuff that doesn't happen inside the courtroom. You still are dealing with like the lawyers talking with their clients, uh, about what is going to happen in the courtroom. Yeah. And so it just focuses the story. It focuses the storytelling and anytime, like I, I almost want to do like a fan edit of this and cut out the newsboys and cut out the reporter who had cancer and cut out Reverend Dave. I want to cut all those people out and see if it would still work. It would, by the way, like it really is not, there might be a couple things here and there, but for the most part it would be fine. Um, and I feel like that, that is a good call on the part of the writers that they recognized where the drama is and played to that. I wish they'd been a bit more, you know, uh, disciplined and realized we don't need to have these extraneous characters. Uh, many of whom are just shoved in there from the first film. We don't need that. There's already power in this story. So that more than anything, the first film was so meandering that I was just, I was often bored. I was often frustrated with, but with this, I'm always paying attention. I'm as invested as the film will allow me to be. Um, and within that, I will say that playing playing the two lawyers are real actors, Jesse Metcalf and Ray Wise. I'm a big fan of Ray Wise uh, for a number of reasons, not mm-hmm. the least of which is Twin Peaks, uh, but also uh-huh. he was very good in the, in the show Reaper, in which he played the devil um, appropriately. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's just a very dependable actor. Yeah. Um, even when he's playing a character as, as inherently melodramatic as this, he still finds nice little moments and nice beats uh, and makes the character as real as it can be. Um, Jesse Metcalf, the nature of the character is a bit more, not necessarily stereotypical because the Ray Wise character is pretty stereotypical, but like, it's just like, oh, he's off the beaten path and he doesn't wear suits and that sort of thing. But Jesse Metcalf commits. He you know, his speeches are, are impassioned and they feel real. Um, they're, they're again, they're written fairly clunkily, but I don't even really notice that much because his performance transcends that for the most part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a, at least, uh, just to break in there. Cause that was, that was something that I enjoyed mm-hmm. that I remembered is he had one line in particular in one of his final speeches that I really liked. Um, which I just point out cause a lot of times we say we don't like the dialogue in some yeah. of these films. Uh, he had a line where he said, if, I think he said like if the right to to express your religion has to become subordinate to so many other rights then it ceases to be a right. Yes. And I'm I'm not saying that exactly what it was, okay. but that was a that was a poignant and powerful line. Yeah. And it's uh Yeah, and those moments, you know, 
That's the thing. Often where those where the courtroom moments don't work for me, it has to do with with me. Yes, the writing's a little bit clunky, but it's because it's dipping into melodrama. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with melodrama. No. Yeah. You know, it's not. I mean, you have somebody bursting into the courtroom saying, "I want to testify." Yeah. That's the stuff of melodrama. That's the stuff of again Nicholas Sparks. That's the stuff of John Grisham. But Nicholas Sparks and John Grisham are, are genuine authors, you know, who are trying to write something that will stir you emotionally in the biggest way possible. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's this that literally comes down to it's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Um, and so that is to the film's credit that there is power there. And when and when the film if the film shoots itself in the foot. It's arguable whether or not it actually does, or maybe it's just, it's not what I would prefer. Mm-hmm. I like courtroom dramas where the, where the, the, the drama and the tension comes about because of smaller things rather than bigger things. But that's me, you know, the, a lot of the, the film that we'll be, uh, that we'll be talking about for the comparison, um, is what I'm talking about. The stuff that would, that works better for me. Um, so there are other positives, but I feel like Choosing to focus on the courtroom is a good call as far as just keeping me engaged. Uh, The acting, I think, all around was much better. Um, I was I'm on board with with, you know, uh, Melissa Joan Hart and Jesse Metcalf, Ray Wise, Ernie Hudson, Um, Pat Boone. Pat Boone, who who did fine. Yeah. You know, character's not necessary, but, you know, and we'll talk about him later. But um and then I'm trying to think if there's if there's uh, anything else. There there is. I'll say this: there are char- uh, the characters that return for the most part. I don't like them. However, I do like the character of uh, Martin Yip, the uh, the Chinese kid from mm-hmm. the first film who becomes a Christian. And in this film, you actually see him developing as a Christian in a very broad sense, but the actor does stuff with it. Yeah. There's a really nice moment when he is, he's been basically rejected by his father once again in a very melodramatic way, but he follows up the melodrama with walking into a church, sitting at a piano, very quietly playing and very quietly singing nearer my God to thee. It's a very touching moment. I thought, yeah, partially because it's so small Mm -hmm. and it follows, it follows a big scene with a very small, quiet solitary scene like this character feels very alone and everything about that scene underlines that he is alone and that worked really well for me and i'll talk more about the martin character as we get into the stuff that we don't like Mm. not as but not as a function of the performance paul quo plays the the character and i think he does a really really good job with it um Again, they don't like the characters written fairly clunkily and very broadly, but I don't blame the actor for that. I think he does a good job. Um, and then I think the 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 last big thing. I mean, we could probably talk about individual moments, but the the big thing that I really like. And if this were a few years ago, maybe even if this were the first film, I don't think this would be the case. Jesse Metcalf's character is not a Christian at the beginning, and he is not a Christian at the end. Yeah, how. Many fil- like I would have bet a lot of money on him deciding that in the midst of arguing this, he himself has been convinced. Yeah. But there's no evidence that he is convinced of this. He yeah. believes in his client and he believes in a in a in a legal 
uh, victory, but uh, but not necessarily a, a spiritual one. And mm-hmm. I think that that is to the film's credit. Partially yeah, no, because I agree. it shows that, you know, so many of these movies show that like non-believers are always going to be bad. This is a non-believer who is good and he stays a non-believer. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's great. Yeah. Because the, I, I think that steers us away from the us versus them mentality that can come mm-hmm. out of these movies sometimes, which is like, if you're not a Christian, then you are a problem for Christians. Yeah. Um, which I, I don't think at all is the attitude that we should have. Certainly not the attitude that Jesus had. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think to have a character that is a positive force in the film is someone that we like and that does good things, but is not a Christian. I, I think that, yeah, I think that's, that's a good thing to see in this one. And when you watch the movie, an argument could be made that he wins the, he wins the case. He wins the trial mm-hmm. and someone could, and a Christian and non-Christian could watch this film and the Christian says, look at how God used that man. Look at how God used the jury. And the non-Christian could say like, the, the guy came up with a, the guy realized what the jury needed to hear and he said it. It's him, you know? And by having the character not become a Christian or not start as a Christian, but still fight for the, the good guy, I think is a huge leap forward you know, I mean, admittedly, there are other Christian films that have been doing this already, yeah. but for, I, I certainly did not. The film surprised me pleasantly mm-hmm. in that way um, when I really thought it was going to steer right into my expectations, but it did not. Yeah, I, th- I kind of thought that was going to happen, too. I also thought the uh, school superintendent was going to convert at some point. <laughs> Or the principal, whoever. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Robin Givens character? I was like, she's going to show up at some point and be like, oh, no, I can't believe that I did this. But she didn't. And then she, and then she just like kills herself <laughs> like Judas. <laughs> or she gets hit by a car. <laughs> That's um, true. Um, uh, but, uh, but she didn't. Of course, then again, she sort of turns into an evil character. Yeah. So. And when you see, and when you look at, okay, so that's all the positive for me. But I will say this. All of that stuff for me adds up to a, I'd say at this point, a much better film than the first one. The first one was effective for me almost not at all. This one was effective for me occasionally. Now, talking about where a film improves is not the same as saying it is now good, but it is an improvement, and it's worth underlining how much of an improvement it is in certain ways. Um but yeah, I will use this to get us into the negatives and, you know, the, the episodes going on longer than I thought. So we can, we don't have to spend that much time on this partially because the negatives are the usual thing, you know, and, and you can read about the negatives of God's not dead to any number of other places, but we still need to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the idea of making atheist characters villains, uh, while they, mercifully spare the Jesse Met, Jesse Metcalf character from that. Um, nobody else really gets away clean. Uh, Ray wise definitely seems like a sinister guy. He does what he can to humanize the character, but mm-hmm. like, I, <laughs> I love Ray wise and mm-hmm. I find that like he's a lot of fun. I thought he was comically ridiculous in this movie. Like, I, what I wrote down was Ray wise equals snidely whiplash. <laughs> like he seems like he could have been wearing devil horns the whole movie and it would have, yeah. wouldn't have made him any seem any more like, 
like there's so many shots of him like looking evilly around, mm-hmm. like hunching his shoulders, or like when he's talking to the family about how he's he's talking to the girl's parents, the girl who was in the class about trying to get them to sue and he's like holding them out the pen yeah, like yeah. the devil trying to get them to sell, sell their souls away yeah I, I think and i don't know if that's that honestly could be him wanting to make that character over the top silly which isn't <laughs> in a movie like this it's not the worst instinct no it's not and i i kind of and maybe he thought maybe he looked at the page and he thought this is very silly the way it's written i'm just gonna play it that way yeah it's like and, that's clearly what they want and no one ever said like you're kind of seeming too evil to exist in a in a real world yeah um and he was like all right fine uh but but it's it it seemed ridiculous to me and I guess the thing is, uh, he for some reason he never struck me as as incredibly over the top. Uh, I always believed, not in a human way, not in the way that I would in a, if I'm watching somebody in real life, but I believed that his character felt the things he was feeling, thought the things that he was saying, um, as opposed to in films like this, like there are lines delivered that's like i don't believe that for a second yeah i can see the actor all the way through whereas yeah. this it's just like he's playing an over-the-top character it's ridiculous and i will say that there is definitely precedent for the opposing counsel being particularly evil yeah as in john voight and the rainmaker you know? yeah now my preference is james mason in the verdict robert duvall in a civil action we will be talking about george c scott in anatomy of a murder in a moment mm-hmm. uh i do like the character of the opposing counsel but there is definitely precedent for that character being abnormally evil. Who plays that in uh, Reversal of Fortune? Who's the... Nobody really. Really? Yeah. Hmm. No, we really see, we mostly see people on, on this side. The opposing hmm. counsel is just kind of... Because we're not in the court that much. Yeah, it's true. So. But yeah, court of public opinion. Sure. Absolutely. For some reason, I thought myself found myself thinking of that movie during this movie, and I don't know why exactly. I was toying with having that be the companion film, but we've already used it. That's true. So for the blind side, oddly enough, Hmm. (laughs) that's an odd choice on my part. Um, (laughs) I don't always stand by my, don't get me wrong. I stand by the companion films because they're usually great. Yeah. But, uh, but the connections I made, you know, I mean, a month ago, Robert and I talked about room and first blood. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. It worked out really well, but it's just like, Tyler, what are you thinking? Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I, but then also like the, the members of the school board, I mean, they're just so comically like the lawyer for the, the lawyer. School board. I thought that same thing. Like as soon as he came on camera, I was like, did someone ahead of time be like, we need to make him look more like a weasel. Like what can we do? Yeah. He's like sitting back hunched over in the suit. His hair's kind of like messy in the yeah. back. And he's got like, his skin is pale. He's got like bags under his eyes. Yeah. Like he looks like Danny DeVito's penguin. Like, <laughs> I mean, not exactly, but he looks like. Like he just crawled out of hell yeah. so that he could bring somebody back with him. And he's like, he finds such joy in having to tell her that she's going to have to recant her. He's yeah. Like, we thought of an idea that's going to work perfect. Yeah. Um, it is. It's like, I, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that uh, in the world of Christian film, there is nothing worse than like uh, uh, an ACLU. I know that he doesn't work for the ACLU, but for all intents and purposes, an ACLU lawyer is like the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but, and I feel like you can still do that character and have him be the evil one without being that silly. Like I, and, and I think it's even more, it's less effective that way. Mm -hmm. Like not only, I feel like the instinct is, is 
to make sure that we understand that this character is evil. And I think then that that is the then it does the bare minimum of we just look at him. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the bad guy. Yeah. When you have somebody who does those same things but looks good, um, maybe a quasi example is uh, Billy Crudup from um, uh, Spotlight. Spotlight. Yeah, that's, absolutely. Uh, he's, he's in his case, the better he looks, <laughs> the less I trust him. Yeah. And um, so I don't know. I feel like. We, we all know you don't have to do that, but I feel like that's kind of an artistic. I am reminded of what we were talking about last week with Fagin, that you yeah. and I are still waiting for the adaptation where he actually presents himself as a dignified gentleman so that he can a better move through society mm-hmm. and pick people's pockets without them realizing it or suspecting him. Like if he's, if he's like the guy from nightcrawler, like <laughs> yeah, absolutely. that sort of type. And so, um, yeah, just have a guy who's who sees himself as very respectable as opposed to this weaselly little like seemingly ambulance chaser or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, so the opponents are most definitely seen as a, a negative thing, um, as almost demonic. <laughs> um, so uh, and then a lot of the stuff with just the court case itself is just very melodramatic, you know, and even the scene, the back and forth between Ray Wise and Jay Warner Wallace is, is pretty effective for the most part. But then there's that moment when Ray Wise says like, well, surely you came to these conclusions as a Christian. And then there's this moment where thankfully Jay Warner Wallace does not play it as this. Right. But he does say it's like, actually, no, I came in as a stone cold atheist. And then just like the look of just like, Ray, Ray I just like, lost my case. He like grabs at the podium yeah. like he might fall <laughs> upon that information. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's ridiculous. Um, and so and then when when the woman does like burst in, like she opens both doors, not at the back of the court even either. Like she is she just waiting on the side. Why is she there? I don't know. It makes no sense except to make a big entrance and yeah. it comes at exactly the right moment. And it's just like, come on guys. Um, when the court is, when the, when the case is won, spoilers, everyone, when the case is won, she goes out and you know, everybody's waiting on the steps to hear what the verdict is. And she comes out and she says, God's not dead. And it's like, look, I recognize you have to say the, the name uh, of the movie, but nobody this was not a phrase that was used publicly uh ray wise says it to like one person uh behind closed doors this is not a i think he says it to those parents which is another ridiculous (laughs) we're going to prove once and for all that god is dead yeah it's like if i'm if i'm those parents i look to i look to my spouse i'm just like I feel like we're being used. Do you smell sulfur? (laughs) Um, but yeah stuff like that where it's just you know, I'm okay. I am. I'm okay with the concept of melodrama, even if it's not yeah. the most effective thing for me. But there are moments when it dips from melodrama into just straight up, like completely unbelievable. Because to go back a little bit, the thing about melodrama is that it actually, when it's effective, it goes into the emotions that we all feel and it blows them up. But the, it's, it still comes from a place of truth. It still comes from a place of of realism and a place of relatability. Where the, whereas this film, sometimes it's it's moments of melodrama are that, but other times it doesn't come from a place of truth. That woman, that that girl, would never come out and say that phrase. It's not possible. She yeah. would say guilty, non guilty, or it's like it's like she won or something like that. That's what she would say. 
uh, she would not come out and say God's not dead. You know, it's I've said it before. I quoted uh, I quote the comedian Todd Glass all the time when he talks about comedians that are like really angry on stage. And he's like, you know, he's like, I know that you're only this angry because we're watching. <laughs> um, and there are moments in this film where they only happen because we're watching, which is to say they're not organic. They're there for us, yeah. but not in a way that to please us, but as a way to pander. Mm. Um so, you know, stuff like that uh, bother me. Um, I'm trying to think of other things with the court case. This is a personal thing of mine. I like Ernie Hudson as an actor. but ha- And also, having watched enough courtroom dramas, I am of the opinion, and maybe this is just a personal opinion, the judge is a character. The judge should be a character and should have a great deal of power and a great deal of authority. Um and when you have an actor as good as as Ernie Hudson in that part, you need to give him something to do. But as it is right now, he really is just he's even less than that judge in in your random law and order episode saying, I'll allow it. You know, yeah. let's see where he's going with this. You know, it's it's not that he he's almost a non-entity. And I felt like I, I like yeah. the idea of there being a judge with some level of authority, even and you would need to develop the character a little bit more, make him make it seem as though he genuinely is not on the side of Melissa Joan Hart, or maybe he is who's to say, but you know, I'll be talking when we talk about anatomy of a murder, I'll be talking about the judge there as well, played by a very notable person, Mm. um, which we'll talk about later. But, um, so that's, that's a, a quibble that might be a function of my preference, but I do feel like that is, it's a way to give the, the, the proceedings more weight because in a court case, the judge runs that courtroom. It is his courtroom. Yeah. And for him to recede into the background is something that I, I feel like is a, a misstep artistically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to, I was about to move on to other things in the film that, that get to me. But before I do that, let's stick with the courtroom stuff itself. Um, what stuff uh, gets to you? There, there were points when it, it just, it felt not genuine to me. Like it didn't feel like a real sure court case. I, I also feel like I have to give that a little bit of grace because I, I think that is kind of the way these sort of movies work. Like I feel like sure. most court, court courtroom cases are based on things that people think happens in courtrooms and yeah. not what actually happens in them. Well, what actually happens is often tremendously boring. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, so yeah, uh, stuff like that bothered me a little bit. There was one particular aspect of it that I found condescending and that could be just me. Um, this is sort of peripheral to the court case, but not really. Uh, the moment she steps into the, uh, really the office with the school board people Mm -hmm. and they say you were preaching in class or whatever. My thought is like, well, if I'm in that situation, my answer is like, well, I'm speaking about a historical man because Jesus is a historical character. So yeah. th- that has to be allowable in the school. If we believe that Jesus historically as a person existed, which most yeah. people believe. Um, and it was a response to a question. And I'm talking about nonviolence, everything about this. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. So, so that was, that was my first response. Mm-hmm. 45 more minutes into the movie, I'm like, well, they're, they're just never going to really address that. And then it turns out to be a turning point, like flash yeah. of inspiration idea that the teacher, not the lawyer has. And my thought is 
it, it felt like either the, the, the filmmakers think that Christians would not be able to come to that conclusion immediately, or in fact, Christians wouldn't be able to come to that conclusion immediately. I don't know which one is true. That's a conclusion I came to immediately. So my assumption is to think that's what most people would. I'll say that I didn't partially because I thought they had such a good argument on the concept of liberty that it didn't even occur to me. Well, maybe, yeah, <laughs> but that's, me. um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. That felt like the obvious thing. And then the fact that that came in so much later, uh, kind of bothered me. This is a weird comparison, but similarly in the imitation game, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know if we, did we ever talk about that on this show? No, I feel like I t- maybe I just talked about it with people when I was watching it, but that I feel like did a similar thing, which early on in the movie, they talk something about like the, the something about like how the codes are like, like things that would re recur in the yeah. codes. And I immediately thought like, well, you find those phrases that you know would be in every one. Yeah. And then like, it's seemingly maybe years into the whole process of their code breaking thing. They're like, wait a minute. All this, all the messages end with Heil Hitler. Yeah. And my thought is, I know in reality, these code breakers didn't take that long to figure it out when me, uh, an audience viewer, yeah. <laughs> that's these are, the, these are some of the smartest people that ever lived. Right. And, you know, like these people would have come to that conclusion long before. Yeah. And I understand they're playing it for dramatic effect, but that bothered me in that film. And similarly, it bothers me in this film. If anything, they would have come up with that before they made the machine. Yeah, exactly. Like, we, okay. Well, we know that's going to be in every, in every, uh, speech. So in every, uh, message. So let's make a machine that will <laughs> fix, they'll uh, zero in on that. Yeah. And in the reality, that's probably what happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh, but that's less dramatically interesting, I guess. Um, so yeah, so that was that was something about the court case part of it that bothered me. Um, Here's something that it definitely does have to do with the court case, but it also has to do with with other things as well. So I was I was going to talk about it later, but uh, but I guess it does f- fit in here, which is so uh, Reverend Dave is one of the one of the jury members, and uh, we occasionally cut to an alternate. An alternate juror who, look, listener, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I'm getting glib. I'm sorry, everybody. But I will say it's a young, not necessarily goth, but a hipster looking girl. She's got like blue in her hair. She looks counter culture. Counter. Yeah. Yeah. And this was another thing that bothered me. Surely. It's a it, it it's a great thing that she's not on the jury because surely this counterculture girl would never side with Melissa Joan Hart's character, uh, uh, I would say conservative Christian, never happen. And then, uh, whereas Reverend Dave is on the jury and he's a he's a Christian, he's a minister, he'll absolutely be on her side. He'll fight for her in that jury room. And then he gets taken out with appendicitis, and in comes this girl, and it is treated like well. The case is over and we <laughs> lost. And then when it's revealed and you know, to me, the minute I see her on screen, I was like, all right, I got this. <laughs> She's and just, the one that you think is going to be something else. And absolutely. then it turns out to be a Christian. It's like they're making a big point about books and covers. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then sure enough, she's like, it's, it's implied when she is like the last one, after the case, the case is over and, and everyone's leaving except Melissa Joan Hart. And then this juror comes up and just doesn't say anything, just gives her a little look. And then as she walks, 
as she walks out, you see that there's a cross tattooed on the back of her neck. And so it's like, oh my gosh, everything was fine the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I thought there is something. What's interesting to me is that the film, <laughs> it's, I'm reminded of Cars 2. Where the character of Mater, played by Larry the Cable Guy, is throughout the whole film doing stupid things that I am that I, the viewer, am meant to laugh at. And then at some, and then at one point, the film changes, and this other character, um, I don't know, it's a, a conversation is had, and the Mater character suddenly is like, "Wait a minute, have you been laughing at me this whole time?" and and we're, we, the audience, are made to feel bad. Like, oh, we were just laughing at this guy the whole time. And it got me so angry because like, hey, jerks, I'm doing what you told me to do. You did your job well comedically. And now you're going to make it seem like it's my fault. I didn't create this character. And I didn't. And this is a character that you wrote to be dumb. You wrote to be funny uh, in a dumb way. And now, because I did what you wanted me to do that you one could say manipulated me to do as art will do. Um, now I have to be a, now I'm the jerk. There's a difference between like funny games, uh, <laughs> which, you know, which you, you enter into expecting one thing and then it actually serves something up as opposed to for a movie and a half, you've been telling me this character is dumb and now you want me to feel bad for doing that. And in that same way, it's like, it seems as though God's not dead to dead to is trying to make a point about, judging books by their covers. But in order to do so, it needs to come up with the most obvious book and the most obvious cover. Mm. And in doing so, it's almost as though it's saying like, rather than say, Hey, you can't judge anybody by their cover. It's almost like saying like, she's the exception. (laughs) And, and also by just by trading on this visual, it's, it's setting me up for one thing. Now it, you and I did not buy it, but it's setting us up for this thing. And I think it's appealing to a very ugly instinct in us yeah. that, it, that it seems to think is there and maybe is not. I, I'm, I'm curious to know if anybody that is, I'll just put it this way, that is inclined to like a movie like God's Not Dead. Do you think any of them were fooled by that, by that red herring? I don't know. And again, it's, it's kind of the same as the other thing, like uh, the other problem I had in that either Christians think that way or the filmmakers think that Christians think that way. And either one bothers me. Yeah. Either way, it seems condescending to us. Um, right. So to assume that we would see that person and make that assumption about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit insulting. Um, so, okay. Uh, (laughs) they, they make an assumption about their viewers and, as such or because of that, try to teach them not to assume. Absolutely. Um, okay. So that was there anything courtroom related or court case related that uh, that jumped out at you? I think that's most of it. Okay. Uh, okay, so we will veer into the stuff that is that is uh, peripheral peripheral to that. And so I will say I have a problem with everything. <laughs> the the lawyer because here's the thing: the lawyer in the first film who not lawyer, pardon me, the reporter in the first film who has cancer, and then that compels her to dig deeper into concepts into spiritual concepts and at the beginning of this film she is a christian um but she's new and she's trying to figure it out she is also in remission 
And now that things are better in her life, she feels a little bit more distant from God. That's a genuine thing that happens uh, in a spiritual life. And that is in itself a good story. If you give it a significant portion of time here, it feels like just a total afterthought that is that is distracting. It either needs to be given way more time or cut out completely. Yeah, I. I, Of all the storylines that are kind of not central, that that one is the most unnecessary to the film. You can cut you could make a cut of this with all of her scenes out of it and everything else would make sense. Yeah, no question. I mean there there's one moment where she actually like interacts with Melissa Joan Hart and it's like, all right, and, and there's yeah. an okay scene that comes out of that, but at this yeah. But it's totally unnecessary. Yeah. And it doesn't add anything to the main story. Yeah. And yeah, I I, I think that was a mistake to leave that in. And yeah. I think the the like we said before, to feel beholden to honoring the first one somehow by carrying over the characters is unnecessary, I think in this type of film. And, uh, yeah, I think her is one of them. It, I, I felt like it was ridiculous in the first one that the newsboys were in it. The fact that they were in this movie is is baffling to me. Besides the fact that maybe they have some kind of money in this, like maybe they yeah. are actually either investors in the film or the filmmakers feel like they are enough of a draw for people. Because I mean, they're they are a very successful yeah. band for what they do. You see these concerts that, and that's really what their concerts look like. It's yeah. thousands of people. Um, so m- maybe somehow they are enough of a draw that they feel like they need to put them in the movie. They are so out of place in this movie. It, it does not make any well, they're sense. They're literally out of place. Yeah. They don't, they're not in the same physical space as any of the other characters. Yeah. She calls them on the phone yeah. and yes, they're given lines to say and stuff like that, but it's just, it feels like it feels like a very specific kind of tokenism. Yeah. You know, sometimes people talk about tokenism, like a token woman or the token, you know, uh, African American or the token, whatever. This is like the token newsboys <laughs> that we need to have in every God's Not Dead film. Yeah. And I recognize the title is based on one of their songs. Yeah. But at the same time, it's totally unnecessary. It's, like if you were to do that with another, if you were to do that and with some kind of other character that was not a famous person and that didn't have this weird band scene at the end, you'd be like, that must be someone's cousin or something that they yeah. had to put in the movie. Like yeah. It, it, doesn't make any sense and you know that there's something behind the scenes which is forcing it to be in the movie it's like a 1950s horror movie where they would incorporate bands into like one yeah. scene what's that one where like the uh, the zombies are on the tv in a bar oh gosh, some episode, I, I don't know i can't remember which one it is but it's some kind of it's some movie that's like that and the zombies have nothing to do with the movie at all, but there's a scene where people are at a bar and there's a TV in the background and it's playing them on it. They're not in the rest of the movie, (laughs) but, uh, it was, people were into those bands at the time and it was enough to be like, Oh, the young, that'll get the young people in. It was like a, there would always be like a short musical interlude, uh, just to appeal to a different audience for like four minutes. (laughs) Um, if that, uh, yeah. And it just, those scenes, like it just came, you know, like I was saying, like a court case has forward momentum. When we go to that journalist, when we go to the newsboys, screeching halt. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, Reverend Dave. <laughs> Here's the thing. 
So before we record every episode, uh, we pray. And one thing that I always try to pray is that God will grant us humility and eloquence in the things that we say so that we are not snarky and that we are not prideful. And and that goes double for when we talk about Christian films, because it's very easy to be dismissive of these and focus only on the negative. It is important to me to not adopt that tone. But when I am talking about David A.R. White... I don't think I'm getting snarky. I don't think I'm heightening my tone for effect. I get genuinely angry at him uh, because he's not merely an actor. He's also one of the producers. He is, he's one of the creators of Pure Flix. Um, he was a director and a writer. Um, I've seen some of the stuff he's acted in. I've seen some of the stuff that he's directed. Um, and here's what I will say. And I, it pains me to put it in, in such large terms. Um, he is a, he's a mogul. He created Pure Flix, which is now a huge thing. He created that. Good for him. He's probably, he's a producer. He can get money together. He can, he can make a movie. He can put a movie together. He can get actors. He can get a director. He can put all that together. Great. He is in no way a creative person. He's not a good director. I've seen some of his stuff. He's not a good writer. He is not a good actor. Um, I saw, I forget, boy, I forget the name of it. Uh, like, like Holy Man Undercover, something like that. I don't know. It was a, it was a comedy where he played uh, two roles <sighs> and it's, and it was just like, and it's, 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 it's awful. And the thing is like, he has talents and they are desperately needed talents yeah you know i mean how many you know you they're talents in general like how many times have you uh, a writer director have you felt have you thought like man i wish i knew a producer yeah like a producer that could produce yeah you know if you can find someone that can do that and is committed in his case committed to like making christian films and getting them out there that's marvelous that's great but recognize where your talents actually lie. Um, and it is not in acting. It is not in writing. It is not in directing. And anytime he shows up on screen and his character is often played for like laughs. I never laugh once. It, I cringe anytime something seemingly funny is supposed to happen. But then there are also moments when he's, he's supposed to be uh, dramatic and talking to the, the Martin Yip character. Um, and he's not effective there either. There's just something about his on-screen presence that just doesn't work. Maybe it's a lack of charisma. I don't know what it is. And I don't mean to speak, I feel bad speaking ill of him, but he needs to stop doing this. And here's why I mention it so adamantly, because he is the lead of the next film. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has to be, right? Probably, yeah. Like, he's gone from supporting to supporting, and now there's a there's a post credit scene, which the fact of that is silly to me um but there's a post-credit scene where they actually pick up a thread that i completely forgot the film uh dropped Uh, i was like oh yeah that's what happened with that oops i forgot and didn't apparently didn't care um so the character gets arrested and it's implied like all right so the next case first we had the thing in the classroom now we've got uh, a courtroom and now we've got somebody actually in jail now we've got this larger thing um now he's actively going against like the government as opposed to like just the ACLU or a college campus. Um, so it's like, so he's, you know, 
the person involved in the person in trouble, the Christian in trouble is the lead basically. And so he will definitely be the lead of the next film. It'll undoubtedly be an ensemble, but it's going to be all him. And that's going to be tough. And I don't think, I don't know if we're going to cover that one because you know, the kid in God's not dead. There wasn't much of the character. He did what he could. Melissa, Melissa Joan Hart and Jesse Metcalf, I would say are the leads of this one. They're both good actors. They can do it. I've seen him as a lead before and it just does not work for me. And again, I feel bad being so negative, but there are, there are people in the Christian film industry that make it worse when they try to do certain things. And he's one of them and building a whole movie around him, building a scene around him is a bad idea, much less a whole movie, especially when you have a God's not dead three movie right in front of you. You've got this recent convert, this Chinese kid who says, I'm going to be a missionary going into China. And then Reverend Dave says, well, have you thought about that? Have you thought about the risk? Are you ready for it? And he says, yes, I think I am. There's your movie. You want to you up the stakes? Yeah. A country where it's genuinely illegal yeah. to talk about this stuff. Where you where this kid could get in major trouble, and yes, I recognize budget budget wise, you're not going to be able to shoot in China. No. It, you would have to figure some stuff out. But there's your movie, and that's a movie I want to see. Compared to these movies that are, like we said, important but fairly low stakes. You want stakes? Send that kid into China. You know, and even if they did it super melodramatic, which I'm sure they would, and I'm sure I would roll my eyes at a lot of it. But that's a you know. I was talking about how there's genuine forward momentum with a court case. Imagine that where he's in actual hostile territory. Yeah. But they're not doing that. Instead, they're elevating this nothing character, this waste of screen time. And that's what the movie is going to be about. Now, I haven't seen the film. Maybe it'll be great. Except it won't be. It can't be. And I, Reverend Dave is such a frustrating character. He was in the first film. He is in this film. And he will be doubly so, maybe triply so. It's a third film. Triply so <laughs> in, in that one. Yeah. Again, I'm sorry for being so adamant about it. But it, it the character is so tone deaf. I, f I feel like it is a strange choice to, uh, you know, of all the people that they've been able to get over time to take the one who is not an, a professional actor yeah. and elevate him to be the center of a film. It seems like they would try and go for someone, you know, who's a bigger name or something yeah. I, or, 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 you know, a more serious actor. Um, that seems like a smarter idea. And I, I feel like anytime when there's somebody who, you know, is powerful behind the scenes that then kind of wiggles their way into the limelight, no. it always seems like hubris to me, a Christian film or no, like I no. feel like anywhere that that happens, you're like, well, they're, they're doing it because you know, because it's them. I kind of feel that way. Anytime I see like a celebrity that decides they want to direct a movie. I do too, which is, it's, which it's, is mean of me because it's kind of unfair because they can do it. You know, it's not like they can't do it. Yeah, and like there Clint are, Eastwood is a wonderful actor. Exactly. And like, uh, George Clooney's made some movies that I love. Yeah. Robert Redford. I love. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not that it can't happen, but, but there is that sense of like, okay, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in a position that is not your position and you've gotten there because of some level of power that you have. Yeah. And I feel like that always that always comes off as questionable. So uh, I, I I don't like to see them doing that. 
and within the character, they they also have a moment when he and his friend, uh, the guy, the the pastor from you know from Africa who was in the first film, and now he's back in this one, and the two of them are having like some goofy back and forth and all that, and then. They're like at a restaurant, and then the waiter who is the... They decide to bring that, the bit back. That is my least favorite part of this movie. I, I hated that moment. And maybe it's just because I really... Like, a moment that is so painfully obviously played for laughs and is not funny, uh, both I do not enjoy, and it's uncomfortable. It's like, yeah. if you've ever been to see bad stand-up comedy, really, if you've ever been to an open mic somewhere, you've probably seen some bad stand-up comedy, yeah. and it's like, this person is trying, I'm supposed to laugh at it, but it does not work, and I don't, yeah. I do not like it at all. Yeah. And Here's the thing, though, when you see a bad stand-up act, they can't cut anything <laughs> out, whereas this, they could have cut yeah, it out. they could, well, and it's like the whole movie, that, that means there is a team of people who are like, yes, we're signing off on this yeah. bad bit, and I, I that's such a weirdly misguided decision. And that is one thing I will say. A lot of the, the Christian films, as much as we can say some good things about them, almost all of them have really bad comic relief. Like they understand that they're supposed to have comic relief. Yeah. But it's so bad. And I, I remember Alex Kendrick occasionally does okay with low level comic relief, provided it is deadpan. Like his comic true. relief and fireproof. Horrible. That I one, guy, I hated, I hated I every hate moment that. of it. I hate that guy like doing silly things yeah, in, in, in front the, of the mirror, the mirror. Oh like gosh. in courageous. And then also in war room, there are moments where a character is just stone faced staring and, and Alex Kendrick lets the moment breathe. Hmm. And I actually laugh out loud. Yeah, that's true. He's not, he's not awful at it, but these, but you're right. For the most part, there's, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I had a, I had, you know, uh, I had a book when I was a kid that I bought like at a Christian book sale or whatever. And it was like, it was like 101 clean jokes for kids. None of those jokes are funny, <laughs> not because they're clean, but because they're just terrible jokes. Yeah. They're like, they're worse than they're much worse than dad jokes. Well, and, and I feel like that's one. Maybe I have a personal chip on my shoulder about this too, because comedy is a big thing for me. Like I'm yeah. interested in comedy. I write comedy and things like that. So I, I'm, so committed to the idea and, and not even like as a cause, but like I 100% believe that you can make lots of very funny comedy without it having to be offensive. Sure. It's, it's almost as like, it's almost as if some of these Christian films believe like, well, more people will laugh at it if it's, if it's off color or something like that, but we can't do that. So we have to do something that's safe. And I don't know, somehow that translates into, boring jokes so much of the comedy that i love is totally clean and is hilarious at the same time but you know what there's also i would say the the comedy you're referring to has one of two elements there is a negativity to it and i will inc i will incorporate discomfort like the office there's mm -hmm. a negativity to it or there's a uh, absurdity to it yeah um like you know monty python or 30 rock or whatever um you know, or negativity, like I'd say something like Seinfeld, where there's just, it's very misanthropic or it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Same deal. A lot of that is, but at the same time, there like, there's a lot of great, just wordplay in 30 rock that is yeah. just funny based solely on that. There's a lot of kind of surrealist type stuff that can come up in comedy that doesn't have to at all be offense. Like there are some moments people might not like in too many cooks, <laughs> 
but the concept as a whole is funny because of something that's just genuinely mm-hmm. funny that isn't is offensive to no one except yeah. maybe maybe tv producers from the 80s i don't sure. know um or uh what was the other example i was gonna make um i forgot what the, oh oh um i i think of like christopher guest stuff and a lot of his stuff is well, okay. Some people, including me, would say that his stuff is. I don't know how much I believe this, but I have said it in the past that his stuff is deeply misanthropic and that he hates every one of his characters. I don't think so. Like I think they're they're. Uh, I don't think he hates them, but I think he is presenting types that, uh, like extremes of types that exist in the real world, and uh, those types are funny because he, he said something at one point, like comedy is based on people not doing things well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't, there's no way reason that that has to be offensive. Like, right. People not doing things. Well, I all, I do think is funny. I think that's hilarious. And I think like there are lots of ways you can do that and, uh, and not offend anyone. So I don't know. There are so many ways that you can do something funny where no one even has to think about whether it's safe or not. Yeah. Um, but I feel like moments like that are like, let's, well, let's make sure it's very safe. It, it, it smacks to me of people that their concept of comedy for the entire time that they, for, for their entire lives has been this type of comedy. Yeah. Cause I have to stay away from anything that might be objectionable or might not yeah. be safe. So I have to only feed myself in this type of thing. It begins and ends at TGIF with full house and family matters yeah. and all that kind of thing. And then it's like, that's all that I can understand is funny. And then you, you close yourself off to all these other things that yeah. are funnier. And well, better. and also I will say this, that so many of the, like you're talking about straight up comedies. Yeah. And these are movies that are not comedies. They, so they incorporate comic relief. Well, you can't have, I, I don't know if I'm defending them or not, but I'll say is it like the absurdity that you and I enjoy, it would be right. weird. Something like that. Something like sense. this, you know, um, having awkward comedy, I think would work. I, that's why I think the deadpan works. Okay. Yeah. Is because it embraces a certain degree of awkwardness or at least misunderstanding. Um, and I can't believe I, you know, I, I'm not in the habit of defending Alex Kendrick, but that is a thing that I was surprised. Whereas something like, believe me, it is a, it is a comedy and it puts itself out there as a comedy. It's free to be absurd. And there is, there's a lot of absurd stuff in there, um, that, that we, we laughed at quite a bit, but yeah, it's, it is, it astounded me, astounded me when, Reverend Dave is at this table and a wait, the waiter comes up. I didn't immediately recognize that it was the guy who worked at the car rental place. Of course not. I had how, forgotten how I? about that bit from that movie. And I wish I, I still didn't remember. Oh, I definitely it. did not I, forget about the bit, but I'm just fascinated that they decided to double down on it. Like come up with a new, <laughs> this sounds mean, come up with a new unfunny bit. You know, <laughs> uh, it just, it, I, I'm fascinated. And, and this is not an unusual thing i remember what bothered me about the the pirates of the caribbean sequels is that they took certain jokes from the first film that worked that 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 i laughed at and then they kept bringing those in like the idea of there's a a very funny line in the first pirates where uh he keeps saying like why is the rum gone and it's and it's a it's delivered very well they incorporate that line like why is the rum always gone like into like the other two movies it's It's like funny it's like, this is not a, uh, this doesn't have to be like a catchphrase. It was a funny line. You can write more of them and it'll be fine. Yeah. You know, it just, it bothers me tremendously. And yeah, that scene in God's Not Dead 2 is awful, 
most everything with Reverend Dave is awful. I feel like they didn't know how to write him. I feel like David A.R. White doesn't know how to play him. It's weird because I feel like they're trying to make him be like the relatable one. Like he's yeah. just a regular guy like you and me. Like here's how somebody a regular guy like you and me experiences all these things. And I feel like they, those efforts would have been better spent uh, giving us more time with Melissa Joan Hart. Yeah. Because I do feel like she starts to get lost a little bit. Yeah. About halfway through the film, you start to not see her as much because she's been the setup for what the movie needs. Yeah. And then now we, now we don't really need to see her anymore. And I, I, I disagree with that decision and i think they could have spent less time with reverend dave and instead like i said put those energies towards making her the one that we understand and her the one that we relate to and which is one more, of the reasons why i actually do like that that scene between her and the reporter because there's a moment where the reporter says like is this worth it and rather than simply say yes she says i hope so mm-hmm. which is a it kind of a, a it's simplistic but it at least shows that like oh she's not quite as definitive as she was now that she's under pressure yeah and i remember liking that moment you know, you know, I'll bet you there are there are scenes further on in the movie with her and Pat Boone that should have been left in that movie. You know, yeah, like, probably because halfway on, she's got to be having a lot of questions. Uh, they give they give her they give her give her like that one where she's kind of wondering whether she's doing the right thing. Those could be really good dramatic scenes. Yeah. And you've you've already have a built in foil for her in Pat Boone's character that can. Uh, that she can bounce these ideas off of and that yeah. could even sort of encourage her. And uh, I mean, that, that tends to be a trope with these movies is someone who's not sure about something speaks to the older, wiser person, the who, older, wiser person, right. yeah. which is generally a thing that I don't like. But if that would have given us a chance to get more about her character, I think that would have been the right way to go. Yeah, it's and and that's the thing. I'm not opposed to that character. I'm not opposed to the the, the older, wiser person, the Pat Boone character, the uh, who's it? uh Lee Major's character from Do You Believe? Mm. Um, the I forget her name, but in War Room, like just the, the, granny, the, the whatever, yeah, whatever. Was she Mother, Mother Abigail from The Stand? Um, the uh, <clears throat> the older, wiser person, like can definitely play a role in story development, character development. That's fine, uh, thematic development. Um, but yeah, it's usually done so ham-fisted, and it's nothing against Pat Boone. He does what he can, but just the character is just nothing but cliches. Even when he says something kind of neat, when he talks about, like, Melissa Joan Hart says, like, I can't hear God, I can't feel God. And he says, like, well, you know, he goes... Now, I don't think I totally agree with this analogy, but I think it's a good line where he just says, you know, he goes, well, you're a teacher. You should know that, you know, the, the teacher never talks when the student's taking the test. Um, and she's like, okay, that's a neat, that's a neat idea. I feel like it's kind of a black and white view of God. I mean, uh, there have been plenty of times when I've been in a bad situation and I, I definitely feel like I, I hear God and I see God in, in my life, you know, um, helping me through the tough situation as opposed to, I get to the other side and he's waiting for me like, all right, well done. My good and faithful servant. Um, I always get to the end of that and I look back at the footprints and I see that. Oh, if <laughs> he was carrying me. Ah, uh, God, you trickster. Um, but yeah, so such a playful imp, but what's more is even the way they set it up, it's, it's kind of a, it's a somewhat powerful moment just cause I like the, I like the song, but, um, you know, they set up that she feels so alone and then there's a knock at the door and you know, there's carolers, not really, but there's like a group of high school students showing their support by singing a, a, a hymn. And it's a moment that I find somewhat powerful, but at the same time, it also 
it takes the air out of what she's feeling. She's feeling alone and immediately she's shown that she isn't. I would like to see more scenes of her alone um, and her feeling alone. Like it, first off, it would help develop her character. And since this is seemingly about her, I need to n- get to know her more, but also just, it's a thing that, that these movies will sometimes do is they will set something up and then pay it off immediately. It's like, no, just let it, let the tension be there for like three scenes at least. And just let us live in that tension because the character's living in that tension. Don't let us off the hook so quick. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a, it's a thing that, that bothers me that I mean, plenty of movies do it, but, um, but I feel like these movies do it a lot. Like almost like they're afraid, like they're afraid to have us feel bad for too long. Yeah. And it's like, well, I just, as a Christian, I feel bad all the time. Um, and sometimes God gets me out of it. Sometimes I linger in it a little bit, who knows? But Anyway, so I'm trying to think if there's anything else that uh, that jumps out at me. Um, I do think, and this will actually, I'll use this to get us into um, the companion film. Um, I do think that the details of the case are a little bit too open and shut. Um, she has, while they do have a nice moment when it's revealed that, that Melissa Joan Hart's character actually had talked to this girl outside of school hours and had planted the seeds of Jesus as like a, as a non-historical figure, um, in her mind. And then she finds her brother's Bible, which I think is also a little bit ham fisted, but I do like the fact that her, that she has experienced loss. Um, so the student finds her brother's Bible. And so she's thinking about Jesus. And then in the midst of a class about nonviolence, um, she asks a question about Jesus. Melissa Joan Hart's heart answers a very clear question and all that. And then stuff is taken out of context and all that sort of thing. So I like that they actually bring it up in the court that like, oh, well, maybe this is something she was working on outside of class where she'd be nice and safe so that she could do this in class. So I like that they do that. But at the same time, every it doesn't seem like Melissa Joan Hart did anything wrong. Uh, and I would like I, I, I personally like there to be maybe a little bit more ambiguity yeah. in the main character that maybe she did. Maybe she was looking for that opportunity. Yeah. And, and I don't know. And just, and someone presented her with the opportunity. She didn't go out of her way to cause it, but maybe she was like, oh boy, now's my chance, you know? And is, and then the movie asks, is that wrong? She didn't steer it, but she will take advantage of it. Like, I don't know. That to me is a very interesting question legally. Yeah. Um, but the film's not interested in that. No. And it'd be interesting to see, it would be interesting to show also from the other side, like instead of making... (laughs) Snidely Whiplash be the be the voice of the opposition to to have someone who could like in a convincing and eloquent way say why they think Christianity shouldn't be talked about in schools. Yeah, I feel like would be more effective and I think would be more helpful for the intended audience of this film. You could put that in Jesse Met- Metcalf's character. Totally. Because, it, and the reason I think it'd be good for people who don't, who, who are the intended audience of this film is th- if you don't understand why people would disagree with you and why people would want to think that God shouldn't be talked about at all in school, then you don't have any effective argument against them. Yeah. Like we know what we believe, but if it's, if we don't know why someone else believes doesn't believe that, then we can't speak to that at all. You know, it just puts us in a place where we both just disagree and don't ever talk about it and just hate each other. Yeah. And so I don't know. I feel like that 
would be more effective. And I think I can, I can understand a little bit of it, but I'd like to see uh, that's something I would have liked to have seen in the movie. Yeah. Um, maybe it, you know, it might've been more effective if maybe her parents were shown as real atheists for a real reason. Like if they had a, some, you mean the students' parents? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause they're kind they're kind of non characters in the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, but that could have made the, the whole argument more interesting. Yeah, it's uh, but that's you know a little bit too much, too much conflict, and definitely too complex. Yeah, um, and honestly, these are films that tend not to deal in complexity, which is a thing that bothers me because right. in complexity, I think you get a lot more interesting character development, but then you also thematically, I feel like you you kind of get a get something of a workout philosophically mm-hmm. uh, when you see it because you're challenged a little bit, like oh yeah, I guess that's true. Why do I think this? Yeah. But I don't and that makes me think, think think about writing too, because like we've said before, a lot of the problems that most of the problems that we have with a lot of these Christian films are based in the writing. Um, I remember hearing once that the Coen brothers often say that one of the ways that they'll write their scripts at times is is create a situation for the character and then think, how can we make things harder for this character? How can we yeah. make things worse? And and it would appear uh, uh, out of that came a serious man, <laughs> well, which yeah. is the whole film. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, but that becomes interesting and that creates this conflict and uh, both becomes more engaging and uh, brings up bigger questions that make us that make us think and I think can say more to an audience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Christian films steer away from that because they don't want it seems like they don't want to give too much of a challenge. Yeah. And like I started out by saying, I know a lot of their their drive is to be encouraging and affirming. But if you're able to still encourage and fur and affirm in the face of I guess what I should say is the more difficult the and the more complex the uh the, the opposing forces are mm-hmm. the more affirming the film and the story can be. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be doing an episode soon about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, you know, there's something about triumphing over extreme adversity, as opposed to one other guy who is kind of ideologically opposed to, you know, yeah, he'll, he'll do what he can, but he certainly won't stop at nothing. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, Whereas, you know, like the hobbits are so far out of their element in the thing that they're doing and the enemy they're going against that it's more, it makes them more brave and they're definitely more vulnerable yeah. and it makes the, it makes the victory all the sweeter. Yeah. And it's not to say that the stakes aren't high in this. Like I, I yeah. like that Melissa Joan Hart's going to lose her, her, yeah. her job and like and everything her teaching she owns. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's good. So it's not that there aren't big physical boundaries in her in in uh, uh facing against her but i think in a drama the way that you make things in an ideological drama especially the way that you raise things and make them more uh the, the way that you make things worse for them quote unquote mm-hmm. is by making the opposing forces seem more and more right yeah uh, because the more that that's right then that that creates that inner questioning in her. It just creates a lot of interesting drama. And like I said before, it's more engaging. It means more. It's, when she it's, overcomes it. It's why, so, you know, so many of our favorite villains are that Anton Chigurh, the Joker. They make points. That's like, oh, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, 
So, uh, okay, so I will move into the uh, the companion film, which is uh, Otto Preminger's 1959 film, Anatomy of a Murder, based on the novel by John D. Uh, Volker and written by Wendell Mays. Uh, it's, a, it's a courtroom drama that I enjoy a great deal. I will tell everyone that... Uh, the the only relation that this film really has to God's Not Dead 2 is that it is a courtroom drama, but it's one that I think has a great deal of ambiguity. Like we we're not a big fan of the uh, of the defendant. You know, we don't really like him that much, yeah. but we sympathize with what he has done. And um, and and it requ- and the film requires us to like make certain deals with ourselves and to prioritize prioritize one thing over another. Um and it's just a it's a very complex film and it's one that that is not easy to watch at times although at other times it's very easy to watch because the lead actor is James Stewart and uh, I say Jimmy Stewart I I wrote down James but I I think most people refer to him as Jimmy Stewart because you know we're on a pretty casual basis I mean we're pretty close Um, but yeah the the film features a a guy uh, has murdered somebody because the guy the person that he has murdered uh, rapes the the guy's wife. And so it's just like, all right, so there's an insanity plea here. And we definitely sympathize with the guy who wants justice for his wife. But then you realize like eh, his wife's not a hundred percent innocent here. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to imply that like she had it coming, but she was certainly, she was not the, the, the pure faithful wife that we wanted, that we want her to be. Yeah. And then the, the, the defendant himself is kind of a sleazeball. Yeah. And he's off putting and he's just kind of, you know, you don't like these <laughs> brilliantly cast as Ben Gazzara. Oh, of course, of <laughs> course. Um, and then Jimmy Stewart is, is the, their, their lawyer. And, you know, we wind up liking him, but he likes these people less and less, but he still believes in what, in, in, in what he is doing again, similar to reversal of fortune. Yeah. Uh, and then the, uh, the opposing counsel played by, uh, George C. Scott, um, in his first Oscar nominated performance. Um, and again, he's a guy who is, who's, he's relentless. He's a bulldog, but he's not evil. You know, he believes in what he is doing and, you know, and if, if they had played, if Ray Wise, if they had written him and they had played him as more just like a guy who's like, yes, he's absolutely opposed. Like he's an, like he's an atheist. He's opposed to what he perceives, uh, Melissa Joan Hart's character as doing. It's just like, all right, he's, he is, he'll be a, he's a bulldog as well, but he's not a bad person. He just disagrees and thinks that it is that what she's doing is detrimental to society, mm-hmm. you know? So he doesn't think he's evil, you know, um, yeah. nobody, very few people think they're evil. Um, and it's the same with, with George C. Scott and you can see it, how it comes through. And like, there'll be times when he's actually very casual with the opposing with Jimmy Stewart and with the judge. And you see that like, Oh no, he's just a real guy. He feels very firmly about this and he does have a job to do, but he is just a regular guy too. Um, and, uh, and, th- and I do also want to talk about that judge, uh, oh, yeah. played by Joseph Welsh. You know who that is? Um, I feel like when I saw the movie, we talked more about this, but I don't remember. Now. Okay. He was the guy who during the uh, Army McCarthy hearings, he's the guy who said to Joe McCarthy, have you no sense of decency? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I could absolutely see Otto Preminger saying like, 
I want that guy <laughs> to be a judge. It is the only film Joseph Welch was in. Hmm. Um, he did get uh, a nominate. Uh, I think he got, he got the Golden Globe for like most promising newcomers. Like, sorry, Golden Globes. Uh, <laughs> he's he's a uh, one and done. Um, but yeah, like there's first off, it's awesome casting. Just like I'm trying to think if I was in that if I was alive at the time and I was aware of the, of the Armin McCarthy hearings and I saw that moment, which many people acknowledge is like the, was the beginning of the end for McCarthy as far yeah. as public opinion. Yeah. Um, and then I saw that guy cast as a judge. <laughs> oh my gosh. So exciting. And they give, they give him really great monologues and they give him really interesting things to do. And he's not a natural actor. Like he's a little bit stilted at times, but there is an, there's a, an on-screen force to him that just works. Yeah. And it's really, really great. Um, it's such a neat idea. Hmm. Um, so the film was nominated for picture actor, supporting actor for George C. Scott, supporting actor for Arthur O'Connell, adapted screenplay, black and white cinematography and editing. Um, and it's just a, if you haven't had a chance to see it, if you like courtroom dramas, you'll love it. Um, it also has a score by Duke Ellington, which is fun and opening, opening credit sequence by Saul Bass. So if you're a movie person, there's a lot of stuff to to like about this. Um, it uh, somewhat recently got a really awesome uh, Criterion release. Which uh, I think I have. I believe I do as well. Let's see. Let's take a look up here at my... Yes, there it is. I have it on Blu-ray. Very exciting. And I haven't watched it since then. I think I need to. I'm kind of talking myself into it right now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's it's a, just a, it's a really well done... And they focus very much on the case. They do not... You know, they focus on the case and the characters. Mm-hmm. And the characters that they focus on are involved in the case, you know, <laughs> uh, they, they don't veer from that. Like, and even though there's an ensemble quality to it, um, always moving forward. And, and like you're talking about with the Coen brothers, like with every new thing that, that is discovered, it's like, man, things are getting harder. Yeah. It's getting harder for Jimmy Stewart. It's getting harder for Ben Gazzara. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, and he, and some of the things that's making it harder is Ben Gazzara. Yeah. Oh yeah. As we find out more about who he is. Um, it's a really, really great movie. I really like it. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're looking for good, uh, courtroom dramas, I've already talked about, we've talked about reversal of fortune. Uh, the verdict was already a companion film. Uh, I do think thematically, uh, a man for all seasons would have been a good companion film for this, but we've already done a whole episode about it and there's a mini sode <laughs> coming up about it too sometime yeah. soon. And we've also talked when we were talking about my favorite movies, we talked about to kill a Knockingbird, which I yeah. also really like the courtroom sequences in that one. Yeah. It's, uh, and then I also like a civil action. I think rainmaker has its moments, but yeah, it's there, there's a reason that, that, they make courtroom dramas because they, they can be very, very powerful. Um, so I did want to very briefly just talk about the thing that you and I were talking uh, about at the very beginning of the episode where, where we were mentioning how this film sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, inspired us. I, I use the word emboldened. Uh, it emboldened us to like take stands for what we believe. And though the movie is not good, I still came away from it feeling like, okay, what can I do? What... Where can I say, you know, what I believe regardless, you know, it's there, there's this tendency to be like, I, I want to be persecuted. I don't want to be persecuted, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, but I do want to, I do look for the opportunity to like boldly say what I believe, I guess, which is why I started this podcast. Um, so there is a, there are a couple of quotes from the film itself. 
Uh, I'm not going to stand. Uh, I'm not going to be afraid to say the name Jesus uh, as well as I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than stand with the world and be judged by God. Well, I think that line is a little bit on the nose. I do agree with the sentiment. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Bible verses to read. We are going to run through them. Uh, feel free to look them up on your own if you want. Uh, but the Bible does tell us to take a stand and be ready to, to answer, uh, to answer people's questions. We might not have all the answers and that's fine, but, uh, but be ready for that. And so to me, when I go through these, this is a justification for like apologetics and cause people are going to come at you with any number of things and you don't, ha- again, you don't have to have the answer, but it'd be nice if you had more than just, uh, the Bible tells me so, which is not a bad answer, but for that, for the people that are coming at you, it's not going to work. Um, so, okay. That said, what does the Bible tell us? Second um, Timothy three verses ten through thirteen. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch? Uh, Uh, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right. Next, we've got John 15, verses 18 and 19. I'll let you read that. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Next up, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. This is what we were talking about before. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. All right. Uh, first John three thirteen. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sister to sisters, if the world hates you. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Luke 6.22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Next up, Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 12. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in you, but life is at work in you. Uh, Sorry, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So, you know, when you put all these together, I mean, it's a pretty clear idea that I don't think you necessarily need to go looking for persecution because I think that's a thing that we sometimes do. We, we look for an opportunity to, be, opportunity to be martyrs and then we'll definitely play the martyr. Um, but I will say that, you know, at some point it could be at school, it could be at work, it could be just in, in everyday life, it could be on the internet. You know, someone might challenge you or somebody might 
throw out a challenge in general and maybe you feel like you're the one to answer, even if it's scary, even if you're afraid people will insult you and do all these things. You know, I'm somebody who wants everybody to like him and admire him. And, uh, and it has, <laughs> it's weird. I, I have that. And yet it hasn't kept me from, from saying these things. And some would say, that's really great. It's like, yeah, uh, I'm miserable. Uh, I hate this so much. Uh, but, the, but the issue is not that I say these things. The issue is that for me, I so badly crave the approval of others. I shouldn't need that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a part of, you know, connected to your fellow man. But when, if that ever makes me feel bad, it, sorry, if my, my desire for that makes me feel bad for sharing the gospel or sharing my faith, or if somebody else makes me feel bad about that or excludes me for that, then that needs to go. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage you, uh, listeners that yes, God's not, God's not dead too is not a good movie. Um, but as tends to happen with Christian films, its message is still, is still a pretty good one, which is you never know when, when somebody's going to either ask you a question or make fun of you or whatever it is. Um, and it's going to hurt and it's not going to be, it's certainly not going to be fun. And you might doubt yourself and you might dislike yourself. You might feel stupid. You might feel any of these other things, but don't let that stop you from, from saying what you believe. Um, because you never know, you never know who might be listening. Um, and so, I think I actually, this is, this is going to require a little bit of uh, bending over backwards to make this work, or maybe not. I don't know. There's a line from Anatomy of a Murder that I think is interesting, and I will adapt to uh, our purposes, um, where Jimmy Stewart's character in Anatomy of a Murder says, the prosecution would like to separate the motive from the act. Well, that's like trying to take the core from an apple without breaking the skin, which is a, a line that only Jimmy Stewart can make work. <laughs> not that it's a bad line, but it's just, it's very, very down home. Um, uh and I wanted to talk about this idea, like when people, it talks about when people ask you, what is your reason for hope? You know, well, why would they ask that in the first place? And it's because they're looking at your actions and your actions should not be separate from your motivations. And that's why people would ask. Um, and so it's something that I, that I thought was, was very interesting. And so, you know, one could say, try to live a life that makes other people wonder what's going on with you. And then when they ask don't be afraid to boldly say what is going on with you. Yeah. So I think we will leave it there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I do appreciate it. Uh, don't forget about uh, the International Christian Film Festival in Orlando. That's going to be in a few weeks. And I will tell. I will talk more about that as we go along. Um, you can like us on Facebook. You've, you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long. at the Josh Long. And then you can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can email Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. I think that is about it. Thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.